Learning. January till May, the year 2000, San Francisco, California. A message from Sai Baba. Corporate life, here I come. Wealth, success, material comforts. I'd had enough of all that do-gooder stuff, and I was raring for the big cash that the internet boom promised. Except I was a few months too late for one thing. Moreover, I was not actually well-suited to working in a corporate environment. I didn't own a suit. Amy, a good, generous friend I had met in Rio, let me sleep on her sofa for the first two months of my stay in San Francisco. I combed the newspaper for a job, but a big problem was I didn't know what I was looking for. Amy was listening to some bossa nova one Sunday afternoon while I lay on the carpet and circled a few advertisements without much enthusiasm. Read them out loud to me, she said. The first one said, Naming company. Degree required. English or foreign languages. Must be creative. The ad listed a faraway suburb, and when I named it, I pursed my lips and said, See, that'd be too long to commute every day. She stared at me in horror. Are you crazy? That's your perfect job. She mapped out how easy it would be to take the San Francisco subway, that it would practically go door to door. Convinced, I emailed my resume, the company phoned, I went for an interview, and I was hired instantly. So far, so good, but even the perfect corporate job was still a corporate job. I was back in grade school with the wrong clothes and the wrong hairstyle. People used business lingo like, let's keep this issue top of mind. They actually cared about the stock market and brand names and life insurance and American politics. They watched TV every day. It just wasn't me at all. Depression set in. I had moved off my friend's sofa and into a mother-in-law flat, which in San Francisco means a basement apartment with a small, ground-level window peering onto a fenced-in, vacant backyard full of weeds. I felt like that yard. Nobody could see that I was full of growing things. Nobody came to cultivate me. I sank deeper. Another friend I had known in Rio phoned me, and as soon as I heard his voice, I knew he had found a new way. He sounded vibrant, alive. I've met my guru, he said. The guru was Sai Baba, an Indian teacher whom people called an avatar, that is, a living human manifestation of God on earth. Kind of like Jesus, but Jesus was all man, all God, and an avatar is a human with full awareness of his divinity. According to this guru, each of us are supposed to eliminate our ego barriers in order to become our true selves, children of God. That part didn't sound unfamiliar. It's a similar teaching to Christianity. But a guru? My skepticism needle went to ten. My friend insisted that I go to the bookstore today and buy a book on Sai Baba. You are a wreck. Come on, you need some inspiration. I bought one, but the photo on the book of the friendly Indian guy with the huge head of hair did nothing to inspire me. Only as I read the teachings did the messages come through. There's a process in teaching called defamiliarization, making the known look strange. When you re-recognize what you already knew, you appreciate it in a deeper way. If you've ever heard the joke, what goes up when everything is coming down? The answer is an umbrella. You'll see that humor often works this way. So does language acquisition. If you've ever learned a foreign word like the Italian word ristorante, only to instantly see that it means restaurant, you'll feel that certain happiness of, oh yeah, I get it, that's just how they say it back home. So too it was with reading Sai Baba's book. Peace, personal development, quieting the mind, opening the heart, getting past fear. It was only the messenger I didn't dig. My friend called me back a week later to check in. I had improved, as the philosophical medicine was taking effect. The next suggestion crossed all my boundaries. Ask Sai Baba for something. Tell him you need help. What? Pray to a human? This is crazy. My friend replied calmly, You're not praying to a human. You're asking a friend to help you. Just try it. I felt ill. I went to bed and slept for a few hours. When I woke up, the vacant lot had gone dark, and yet I heard someone outside, despite the high fence. I panicked, wondering if I should phone the police. I flipped on the desk lamp and used it as a spotlight, shining it straight onto a cat, hmm, playing with a crinkly plastic bag. Hmm. I picked up the book and smiled at the portrait of Sai Baba. I said out loud, 
Okay, I hear that people come to your ashram in Bangalore, India. If you want me to come visit you, make it happen so I go there for free. And could you please get me a new job? A week passed, and then another. I was almost 31 years old. Wallowing in some serious self-pity, I dragged myself onto the subway, slept for the half-hour commute. I put on a shiny face for meetings, but if anybody was watching, they'd know it was all a sham. My birthday came, and I met my original hostess for drinks in the funky artist Mexican neighborhood called The Mission. I hadn't told her about the Sai Baba business, but she knew all about the job. She was looking for new opportunities for me in the nonprofit sector, and I had been to a couple of interviews. I had hoped the change was coming soon. At work, I got demoted from the position of writer to being receptionist. I felt humiliated, back to answering phones after gaining my degree and working as a writer. The next day, the phone rang, but the call was for me. That had never happened. I didn't recognize the voice until she introduced herself. I'm the vice president of Ashoka. We met briefly during a selection panel last year. My first question was, how did you find me? She had called Brazil to track me down. Her next words took my breath away. If you enjoy living back in the U.S., I'll understand, but how would you like traveling to a few countries and writing case studies on educational projects? I said yes, and only then did I ask her which countries. It didn't matter. I was free. She listed them. Poland, India, Bangladesh, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil. India? Um, where do you have programs in India that you need case studies on? She named off the cities and added as an afterthought, uh-huh, and one in Bangalore. I walked into the head honcho's office and said, thank you, I'm leaving, I have a new job. I went straight to the Photoshop to take pictures for my visa applications. I didn't become any kind of Sai Baba devotee after that, but I was grateful to God who works miracles. And I resolved to keep my promise to visit the ashram. July, the year 2000, Germany, setting the intention, pilgrimage. On my way to Poland to write the first case study, I visited my brother, his wife, and their four-month-old baby in the town in Germany where my brother had received a postdoc scholarship. It was fantastic to connect with them. We strolled the summer streets and ate orange-flavored ice cream. I played with my first little nephew and sang him songs. My brother and I had attended the University of Dallas for one year together, and in Germany we reminisced about those friendships and those parties. Unfortunately for me, as I reminisced about the beer drinking, I consumed just about as much German beer as I had when I was a college student. In the morning, on our way to visit my brother's workplace, the worst happened. I threw up right next to his car. He made light of it, but inside I resolved to change. This big trip would give me an opportunity to grow out of that drinking habit. I told myself I was on an internal as well as an external journey. Meditation? Sobriety, vegetarianism. August 2000, Warsaw, Poland. Sounds of silence, living in a Franciscan convent. I wrote a case study on an eco-farm educational project outside of Warsaw, and then I needed a place to stay for two weeks while I wrote it up and interviewed other educational changemakers in the city. A friend of the farm owner had the brilliant idea of asking her acquaintance, the mother abbess of a Franciscan convent, to put me up. A phone call and a bus ride later, the abbess was looking me up and down and saying, I don't usually do this, but it seems okay, as long as you respect our practices and basically keep quiet. Quiet? I grinned. That's just what I was looking for. What does a convent sound like? Not a complete and total silence. First of all, Franciscans talk, though not much. You could hear bus and tram traffic from the street behind the convent wall, too. In the courtyard, a pair of workmen were building a gate, although they're pretty quiet. They came in to eat while I was having my late evening tea and hardly said a word. Inside the house, the phone rang sometimes. Sisters padded by in soft-soled shoes, on their way to do the laundry or go to mass or eat or go out to the hospital to visit the sick. After two days, I thought I could identify the step of the nun who was in charge of me, Sister Veronica. She liked to come and visit me, perhaps because I'm something different, but more probably because she was one of the nicest people in the world and enjoyed helping wayward souls, even if I didn't speak Polish. The sisters were a cheerful lot. At night, as I was reading, I heard a group of them in the hallway, and they were laughing and talking about something excitedly. 
With Polish, it always sounded to me as if someone was simultaneously speaking and shushing themselves, or walking down through a field of tall grass. Which, unfortunately, because of my Polish, only means why Mr. Bread train station, but just to give you an idea of what it sounds like. In the fine old Eastern European tradition, the sisters enjoyed plying me with food even when I'd had enough. One evening, Sister Veronica, who looked to be in about her early 60s, with white hair and doe-like eyes, brought me yet another roll, and it sat on my bedside table next to the ham sandwiches she had made me in the afternoon that I just couldn't finish. I started going to bed early, really early, before nine, in order to try to make it to 7 a.m. mass. The sisters were so kind to me, and I realized that there was no way to repay Franciscans. Even though I was intending to make a donation at the end of my stay, they would just give it away, and paying money seemed insufficient. The only way I could see was to honor their practices. Okay, 7 a.m. has never been my lucky hour. The first two days I made it, but only by dosing myself heavily with sleep beforehand. In Mass, I got the pattern of what was happening, but not the words. I just heard things like da-da-shush-shush-shush, Mary da-da-shush-shush. So I sat down and stood up and knelt with the rest of the people, plus a few extra lay people who came to chapel, business people and neighbors. I hit the Our Father at the right time. One thing that really made me feel terribly guilty, I was still smoking. I worked at a cyber cafe all day writing. I felt tense and irritable about writing the case studies perfectly, and I'd stand up every half hour, cursed that the words weren't flowing, and I would smoke a camel light. Unluckily, the cyber cafe provided free instant coffee, non-dairy creamer, and white sugar. I took full advantage. By the end of the day, I was a nervous wreck who reeked of tobacco and self-criticism. Could the nuns pick this up? Certainly. I started to feel that they were praying for me, not only when I attended Mass, late, grumpy, and disheveled, but also as I walked past them in the halls on the way to another ham sandwich. Blessings poured out from their eyes, untinged with pity. Halfway through my two-week stay, I gave myself a Sunday off. Heaving a deep breath and stealing myself, I said, See here, it's time to give up smoking. Look at these nuns. They don't smoke. They're happy. You're miserable. Now, who is the simplest person you can think of? St. Francis. He needed nothing. You, addicted to cigarettes, need them every day. Addiction is the opposite of simplicity. I would ask St. Francis to help me. In the tourist map I'd picked up at the airport, I located the main church of St. Francis in the middle of Warsaw. I chartered my path from the convent to the city center. When I walked out the gate in my leather jacket, I waved goodbye to a pair of nuns and threw away my box of camels in the first trash bin I saw. I had estimated the walk would take about an hour. It took three. The pilgrimage was tough. Sunny day, clear skies, but inside me the clouds were black. Every smoker who passed me looked like my potential new best friend. By the time I reached the church, I was in a terrible mood, and as I sat down in the back pew, I started to cry. Then something grew light within. I didn't care anymore. Strangely, I didn't care that I'd walked for three hours. I didn't care about the church's beautiful stone archways. I could hardly remember my own name. What am I doing here? I asked. The wooden kneelers had no leather cushion. I knelt and prayed, thanking God for the gift of simplicity, and I sang the song of St. Francis. Make me a channel of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring your love. Where there is injury, your pardon, Lord. And where there is doubt, true faith in you. O Master, grant that I may never seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love with all my soul. Make me a channel of your peace. Where there is despair in life, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, only light. And where there is sadness, ever joy. Make me a channel of your peace. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, in giving to all men that we receive, and in dying that we're born to eternal life. I knew it by heart from grade school. After singing, I sat back in the pew and looked around. One line echoed in my head, in giving to all men that we receive. That was apparently the lesson I was working on. On Monday morning, I showered, dressed, and showed up for Mass at 6.59 a.m. The nuns smiled. 
I didn't smoke a cigarette for the rest of my time on that case study project. Eight months. September, the year 2000. India. Sensory sharpening. In September 2000, I arrived in India. I stayed for three months and took a step closer to quieting the mind. At the same time, my five senses lit up. I heard and smelled and felt everything with extreme clarity, maybe thanks to less interference from smoking and drinking. Mumbai, Kundapur, Bangalore, Bhubaneswar, Calcutta. Saying the names of the cities I visited remains a magic formula. As much as Poland had been familiar, India plunged me into the most foreign place I'd ever been, and I was meant to find my spiritual path, as so many do in the subcontinent. By most foreign place, I mean non-Western, with a different way of dressing and a different way to eat. The written language was impossible for me to understand, and although English was spoken widely, I had no background in Hindi or any other Indian language. Until India, I'd existed in a European world with a side trip into the indigenous cultures of the Bolivian Quechua and Aymara and the Hmong. Before guiding me through a public school in the outskirts of Mumbai, a Hindu teacher graciously performed a traditional welcoming ceremony. She lit a small lantern and applied a colored dot, bindi, to my forehead, then pressed a few grains of rice there for prosperity. I was moved. A beautiful start to my trip. The bindi is located in the place of the third eye. Perhaps because this teacher prayed for my prosperity in this way, I was able to open up a new vision while in India. 2000, Mumbai, India. New clothes, new everything. I walked into a little market for local people, not far from my hotel. All the tunics and saris were hanging there, so I grabbed the first light blue salwar kameez, the long dress tunic over pajama pants. I saw it on the rack. I glanced at the price tag, and I paid U.S. five fifty. For this good luck, I would have been knocking on the wood of a banyan tree if I knew what one looked like. Out of my element here in India, with minuscule background knowledge, except for the use of English in my travel and common sense, which is turned up full blast, but doesn't necessarily work at all latitudes. Everything was new. Mumbai, such traffic, such crowds, such poverty, so many religions, so many children, so many people. I couldn't look out a window, any window, from my room, a bus, a taxi, without seeing a person. Describing Mumbai is overwhelming. Well, back to my salwar kameez. Hot and humid. In scientific terms, 33 to 35 degrees Celsius. In poetic terms, I was being pierced all over with cloves, like an orange. Everyone I knew who had traveled here assured me that Indian clothes were the best, most appropriate culturally and climatically. So when I came back to my hotel from the market, I had worn my everyday long black skirt and modest shirt. To try on my salra kameez, I was excited. I would be cool and cool. I jumped on the bed a few times so I could see how it looked in the wall mirror. Unfortunately, as I jumped, I realized that the cotton still had its finishing on the fabric, and it gave off a formaldehyde smell that almost killed me. With only one afternoon before my interview in the morning, I didn't have time to wash and dry it, so I took my new outfit for a walk to air it out. The pajama pants fitted fine, and the tunic was big but okay. I was ready to roll out the door when I looked back onto the bed. There was a third part, the scarf thing. The word dupata came to mind, and I resolved to inquire. I held it up and saw that in contrast to my light blue tunic and white pants, it was white with a blue design, a little bit tacky like a picnic tablecloth. And it was big, six feet long by four feet wide. How was I supposed to use this? I already didn't like it. Indian women look beautiful. They look graceful, swathed, decorative, like goddesses. I wrestled with the scarf for a while until I had tamed it, in a way, around my neck. The tails hung down in front. The back of my neck was hot. I looked like a Catholic priest in vestments. When I dropped off the key at the desk, this was a kind of hostel for teachers, with no other foreigners. The bellboys lowered their eyes, and the manager nodded formally. I descended the two flights toward the street, but I paused by the front door, where I could hear them without their seeing me. Three, two, one, an explosion of laughter. Yep. I walked and just kept walking, happy to be airing my dress and my red face. Mumbai is a series of islands and landfills and peninsulas, so although it's easy to get lost in the curving, crowded streets, 
It's fairly easy to find your way back if you can just get to the sea, which is never too far away, and then figure out which side of the city you're on, east of the bay or west of the Arabian Sea. Two things impeded me on my excursion, though. A blister on my heel popped, so I was going, step, ouch, step, ouch. Additionally, the scarf took on a life of its own in the afternoon breezes. It started to fly away, so I put it on the other way with both tails and back. Suddenly it was choking me. I wanted to wad it into a ball and carry it under my arm. But I saw how lovely and sweet all the Indian women looked with theirs. So I stopped, tucked a leaf into my sandal strap as a band-aid, and tried a new scarf position, every block or so. The first time you tied a tie, or the first time you wore high heels, maybe the first time you rode a unicycle, didn't you think the whole world was staring? There's that self-consciousness that hits me anyway, being not from here, and having shyness attacks, and this cloth boa constrictor not helping. The streets were packed, and a reasonably nice-looking businessman was walking next to me. I was striding normally. The leaf band-aid was holding in place. He said hello. I returned the greeting by nodding coolly but politely. I was a world traveler, une jeune sophisticate, citoyen du monde, etc. He matched his step to mine. First time wearing Indian dress? <sighs> I had to laugh. Was it that obvious? He tried to invite me for tea, which I refused. When he insisted, I crossed the street to transition out of the conversation. When I'd been out for about an hour and was good and turned around, I looked up to locate myself using the skyscrapers, that is, the new Boy Scout badge for urban orienteering. The sky was the color of slate. All at once, the wind picked up. I mean, it picked up everything in its path. Leaves, dust, tarps covering little stands selling candy. It could have picked me up if I had used my scarf as a sail. Ah, yeah, it's the end of the monsoon season. This is a storm. People with somewhere to get to started scurrying faster and faster, grabbing taxis, running toward buildings. The energy on the street revved up and up. People without a place to go hunkered down under their tarps or huddled in doorways. I looked up and caught a pebble in my eye. I wiped my eyes out, and I wished I had eyelashes like a camel. Raised my head again and saw a barefoot, bare-chested boy of about eight up in a tree. He was straddling the tree branch like it was a horse, waving his arms in the air with the glee kids get just before a storm. Just then I spotted my hotel and dashed across the street, dragged myself upstairs, removed my painful sandals, collapsed on the bed, and the rain poured down. I threw the scarf into the closet and vowed to master it another day. That evening I also learned to eat with only my right hand, clumsily pinching up food into a small piece of chapati flatbread. My companions had clean plates, a smooth green circle cut from a banana leaf, while I still had a mound of rice and lentils to munch through. All these distinctions shaved away at my ego. India has had its ways for thousands of years, and clearly, I was not there to teach, but only to learn how to get by. 2000, Puttaparthi, India, seeing Satya Sai Baba. Since this is a spiritual autobiography, I'll move forward to the meeting I had set with Sai Baba. His ashram sits a few kilometers from Bangalore. I took the bus to the ashram in Puttaparthi. Like most holy places in the world, the way into the ashram was well marked. I checked in at a welcome office and asked for a bed in the women's dorm. I tucked my backpack under the bed and walked around the ashram. Like a college campus, well-kept, with gardens and residence buildings, offices, and a great big hall for gatherings. The evening was warm. The air smelled like jasmine flowers and nag champa incense. The ashram was blessed with quiet. I couldn't hear the motorcycles or trucks, just a bird in the tree. The travel tension dissipated, and I felt an excitement. How many people would be there? Would I get invited to have a personal interview? If Sai Baba had brought me here, did he know I had arrived? I ate supper in the women's dining hall and sat down at a long cafeteria table next to some Australian women. According to their conversation, they had lived at the ashram for months and years. Before they spoke to me, I busied myself eating lentil soup and reading the positive slogans written in English and other languages on the walls. Next to a huge smiling portrait of Sai Baba wearing an orange robe and waving, it was written... Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And, 
Silence is golden. Then I tuned back into the women. They were basically following the dictum. First, I pray for the mosquitoes to be kept from my bed, and they are. Another said, I have sore shoulders from sitting and meditating. I prayed for help, and I had a dream that Sai Baba was fixing my shoulders. I woke up feeling better. Then they got into a detailed discussion of how near each one had come to sitting in the front row of the big hall. You had to stand in a queue and wait to be seated, so getting up early meant a good shot at the front. But even then, luck or destiny could place you on the aisle, which meant you could reach out and touch Sai Baba's hem as he walked by. They referred to friends who had had interviews, which I'd read about back in San Francisco, in which Sai Baba answers questions and channels information for devotees. Sometimes he even creates objects out of thin air and gives them a special presence. Soon they turned to me and engaged me in conversation. They were friendly. The only problem came up when I said I was only staying for just one night. That's not enough, said one woman with red curly hair made frizzy by the humidity. You'll like it so much you'll want to stay. Unfamiliar with ashram life, I asked another person with shiny dark brown hair and glasses what she did. Do? I meditate. Oh, okay, that was new for me. Unlike the Warsaw nuns who taught school by day, but prayed at mass morning and evening, these women spent their whole day in meditation and had done so for years. I ate a yogurt for dessert and fell into a state of calm observance. What were these women like after years of meditation? They seemed normal, not saint-like. They also sounded like Sai Baba groupies. But who was I to judge anyway? How had they been when they had come in? I asked instead of speculating. How has living here changed you? I tried for the dark-haired woman. She nodded, understanding the depth of my question. In a strong Sydney accent, she answered, I used to have a hell of a temper. Anything could trigger me. Now, I just picture Sai Baba and breathe through my anger. Is there less to get angry about since you live in this calm setting? She looked at me full in the face and grinned. I reckon this is a lovely place to be, but on the other hand, it's pretty close quarters. The woman next to her joined in chuckling, but you'll see the benefits even if you do stay only one day. Twelve beds in one room. I did have a hard time settling down to sleep with the coughing and the fidgeting. I was also worried about getting up at four in the morning, although Cassie, a Canadian woman next to me, gently said that she would wake me up. The temperature dropped too low for mosquitoes, and I lay awake chilly under the thin blanket, reviewing how I'd gotten here. Before I knew it, I heard Cassie's bed springs squeak, and that was enough to make me open my eyes. We were far from dawn, and the chill had turned humid, so I wrapped myself up in a sweater and my handy dupata and followed Cassie to the great hall. More than 2,000 people lined up, I counted roughly, from old to adolescent, all Indians, but wearing a wide variety of saris, glittering with silver threads or just plain white. My seating place, just a spot on the smooth, cold cement floor, was nowhere near the front row, nor on an aisle, so I guessed I'd only see Sai Baba and not touch him or speak with him. We began to chant, Om. These people knew how to chant. The voices swelled upwards and rocked the rafters, and I found myself totally absorbed in each repetition of the sacred sound. The men sat on the far side of the hall, and their bass tones mixed with the soprano women sitting all around me. When I say all around, I mean that sitting cross-legged, my knees touched the back of the woman ahead of me, the woman behind me occasionally bumped me, and to my right and left, the women were one inch away. Such is personal space in India. Our voices became one. We must have chanted for an hour. It was less dark than when we had entered the hall. Suddenly I felt an electric tremor in my body from head to toe. I raised my head. Sai Baba had entered the room. The tremor was unlike anything I'd ever felt before, and it definitely came from him. It wasn't as if people had stopped singing or had nudged each other with, There he is. He came in, and I felt a shock, and then I saw him. He was wearing his orange outfit, and he looked just like his pictures, young, although he was 74. He surveyed the crowd slowly, and then I saw him meet my eye. In my head, I heard a voice say, You're here. How could this be? I was probably person 1,249 out of the 2,000. He looked straight at me and talked to me?
The audience took about 45 minutes. We sat still, and he walked along the front row, accepting letters from the devotees. He stopped and smiled at various people, which caused them to swoon and reach out for their neighbors. It was like being at a rock concert, but silent. Sai Baba sat on a chair, and another man offered prayers. All at once I was so sleepy I could hardly keep my eyes open. I rested my head in my hand and propped my elbow on my knee. I wanted bed. The event was over for me. And soon it was. We filed out, ate breakfast, and then people went to rest or meditate. I packed my backpack and then walked all around the garden some more. I saw a fountain that had the symbols of different religions on it, a lotus flower, a cross, a Muslim star, and a crescent moon. I stopped one of the Australian women walking in the garden and told her what had occurred during the dawn audience. She smiled brightly and confirmed, that happens all the time. He can bilocate, he can be anywhere he wants to be, and he can talk to you in your mind, sure. In fact, many people this morning probably experienced something similar at the same time you were hearing him, although in their own personalized way. I had mixed feelings. I had experienced a supernatural moment, but I had no intention of becoming a Sai Baba devotee. I headed out for the bus station, and as I was waiting for the bus, I met a young Brazilian couple leaving the ashram after a month. We chatted in Portuguese, and the young man suggested that we split a taxi back to Bangalore. We convinced the taxi driver to stop by an amusement park on the way, and we spent two hours going on all the rides. Clearly, I was going through a spiritual roller coaster, and it was great fun to scream it out on a real one. The year 2000, Calcutta, India, Diwali. On the 26th of October 2000 was the first three days of Diwali, the Festival of Lights. Most shops on the streets near my hotel were decorated with marigold flower streamers, thick orange garlands which take hours to sew together. People at open tables on the streets sold these streamers, heaps of candy, candles, sparklers, and incense for the night parties. As soon as the sun went down, firecrackers started going off. According to the newspaper, crackers are banned for three main reasons, smoke, noise pollution, and child labor, but I heard them from all corners of the city. Just as I was pulling on my sandals and getting my camera ready, a hotel staff person knocked on the door and presented me with a plate of Diwali sweets. I ate three of the six super-saturated sugar cakes. Wired on sucrose, I took to the streets. Mimicking the marigold streamers, yellow Christmas lights cascaded from buildings and trailed from lampposts like vines. People masked the streets, buying trinkets and looking at the displays. Some light formations were elaborate. People had wound the strings of lights into wire mesh screens as big as the side of a garage, depicting gods and goddesses as well as the geometric symbols for good luck. One of those symbols is the swastika, and it shocks me every time I see it, even when it's in yellow or green. Much older than the Nazis, who adopted it for their own use, the swastika is a good luck and a health symbol in India. Diwali seems to be all about sweetness and light, until you catch a glimpse of the goddess being celebrated, Kali. One frightening creature. Her skin is bright blue, her big red tongue is sticking out of her mouth, and her coal-lined eyes are bulging. Each of her eight hands is holding a weapon. The good part is that she is wielding these armaments against an evil beast whom she is subduing under her vibrant blue foot. The Lonely Planet guidebook says she is bloodthirsty, hankering after battle and carnage. Shrines to Kali were set up all up and down the street, as big as a two-floor storefront, constructed from bamboo scaffolding with canvas stretched taut over it. They looked like permanent chapels. Devotees paint the structure and apply detailed molding trim around the front door, through which one can glimpse Kali leering. To get a better look around the neighborhood, I tried a transport mode for which Calcutta is famous, human rickshaws. Yes, I had immediate qualms about letting a person haul me around. Most of the drivers are scrawny and look rather sickly, but I had heard that they just love to drive foreigners. We pay better than locals. Besides, I was just one passenger, as opposed to the whole families I saw crammed into a single rickshaw. As soon as I thought the word rickshaw, a driver found me. He had a gray, stubbly beard and looked about 50, with strong, wiry legs sticking out from a plaid cotton sarong. We communicated with sign language. I showed him the amount of money I would be willing to pay to drive around and say, ooh, ah, at the lights. 
I climbed up into the carriage. He tipped the yoke over his shoulders and pushed us off. A university student-looking guy observed this short exchange and then warned, that driver is taking the wrong way. I smiled coolly and I waved my hand. We kept going. One downside to a human rickshaw, taxis and buses treat it like a car, but pedestrians treat it like a person, which leads to less than smooth traffic interactions. The positive aspects? It can go down alleyways taxis can't reach, and it is extremely quiet with no motor. Also, the driver stopped for me to take photos in front of every Kali shrine. Calcutta looks a lot like the French Quarter in New Orleans, if you've ever seen that. Calcutta might be a little newer, but the cities share colonial architecture. On the wide avenues, buildings are brick and stone, two to three stories tall, graced with balconies. On the narrow, crooked side streets, the houses are more like one-room storefronts, with a barn door that opens to the lane. When we passed by one of these on the rickshaw, I saw a woman in a sari gracefully bend down to ignite clay Diwali oil lanterns on her front porch. We had time-traveled back a thousand years. Diwali is something like Halloween, too, plus Christmas, plus the 4th of July. Poor women and children go from store to store with bags or cardboard boxes, and shopkeepers fill their containers with sweets. Kali was everywhere. Why do they love Kali so? Maybe women can tap into their righteous anger through her. She seems to be an advocate for justice, destroying the beast. Ten minutes later, that same student guy appeared alongside my rickshaw to repeat his warning. I made an irritated face, but he kept harping. I then stopped the carriage and used my best get-lost voice. The student, annoyed that I did not want to be rescued, pouted on a corner and watched us drive away. The rickshaw driver broke into a jog, maybe to demonstrate to me that he was hardworking and honest, which I already believed, and that I was getting my money's worth. I held a grudge against the student for breaking my good mood, and I wished Kali would zap him. Around the very next turn, the main street opened up. We were back at our original starting point. Radiant with fairy lights and bursting with fireworks, the street shook to a drumbeat as itinerant musicians played music for the goddess. The driver and I ended our trip with good wishes on both sides. I gave him a good holiday tip, and we parted amidst Diwali sweetness and light. As an afternote, none of my photos from that night turned out. Of all 24 exposures, only a few from my visit to an educational program in the afternoon came out clearly. The rest were smeared with a bluish rainbow, as if the roll had been exposed to light, or airport x-rays, or Kali. The year 2000, Calcutta, India. The Brahma Kumaris teach me meditation. November marked my third month of sobriety and my second month of not smoking. I hadn't missed alcohol, mainly because I hadn't socialized with anybody. I worked, I wrote, I ate, I slept. I meditated in my own way, meaning I sat still and focused on my breathing. That's what I had learned from reading that Sai Baba book in San Francisco. Theoretically, as the alcohol and tobacco drained from my body, I was getting clearer. I couldn't feel a great difference except for sleeping heavily and waking up without a hangover. My temper was still short. The irritability that had plagued me since childhood still permeated my system, inside me like a coiled-up snake, ready to rise and strike. In Calcutta, an Ashoka staff member set me up with a flat on the third floor of an older building in a residential neighborhood. I had a living room where I could spread out all my papers and photos out on a table, plus a bedroom and a bath. Every day I walked around, absorbing Calcutta's street sights and sounds, and every day I passed by a meditation center with English writing on the wall. Change yourself, and the world changes. At first I read the words out loud and smiled, the perfect message. But then I grew curious. Maybe they could teach me how to meditate. One warm evening, as the light turned blue, I realized that there was no reason for me to rush back to an empty flat. I popped in and asked a woman in a white sari if any classes were running. She gave me a beatific smile. Yes, tonight, and directed me to a plastic chair against a wall covered with posters and bookshelves. While she went upstairs, I flipped through a comic book written in an Indian language. Like many of the printed materials I had seen in India, the paper was newsprint gray and thin, and the colors garish. Illustrations of modern people seemed taken straight from the 1950s, and although I couldn't read the words, I immediately understood the messages. A man in a suit and tie has a thought balloon above his head with a woman in a bikini. 
His eyes are round and bloodshot with lust. And a western-looking housewife slaps her child because he has spilled a bag of apples. A schoolboy looks out the window, missing an important lesson. The book obviously covered controlling your temper and bad inclinations. I felt judgmental about the propaganda, yet I knew these lessons were what I needed to work on, so I eagerly awaited the return of the woman in the white sari. When I looked up, three women in white saris were floating down the stairs. Ah, they must be some kind of nuns, I thought. They told me the organization is called the Brahma Kumaris, meaning Daughters of Brahma. Classes were one hour per night. I started that evening and came back for the next seven days. Maybe it was off-season? I had a one-on-one tutorial. It quickly became clear that because I was neither Hindu nor Indian, the first lessons of the genealogy of the gods and goddesses was not where we needed to go. My teacher immediately perceived this block and gracefully moved past it. Maybe you don't need to know which goddess is the daughter of which god. The family tree is not so important for you. Grateful, I asked for our first lessons to concentrate on the meditation technique they recommended. Meditating with the BKs, as they are known, means sitting open-eyed and allowing a smile to rise from within. You can do it for one minute, or you can sit for one hour. We keep our eyes open to control our imagination, my teacher said. I found it tiring at first, but after a few days I could hold my eyes open, blinking rarely, and gaze at a spot in the distance. Practice at home by looking at a spot on the wall. At the school, we used a red light in a small meditating room. When I sat there with the proficient nuns, I managed to meditate for longer. Meditating in groups increases your ability to control your emotions, confirmed my teacher. When she noticed I was giving the practice good effort, she took a shine to me and brought me upstairs into the residential hall, introducing me to the mother abbess named Sister Kay. To my great delight, Sister Kay too seemed to love me, and she invited me to share dinner with the nuns. I never invite strangers, she said out loud, and I don't know why I want to, but please accept the invitation anyway, she chuckled. Sister Kay laughed between nearly every sentence, and she was a tall, large woman, so the laugh resonated through her and throughout the room. I sat at the end of a long table. The lights were dim, the food was a sweetened porridge, and the women in white didn't speak as they ate. They just smiled. The whole place resonated with goodness. After dinner, Sister Kay invited me to her private study. Only then did I learn that the Brahma Kumaris World Spiritual University is a global organization committed to supporting world transformation through personal transformation. Brahma Kumaris give meditation courses and spiritual workshops in over 7,000 centers across 129 countries. Sister Kay was a world traveler, too. But I prefer here, she said. During our conversation, she sat on a big leather chair next to a desk piled with phone messages and study materials. She was on the committee of the BK University and had many administrative duties. She asked me questions about my work and my travels, with particular interest in the Polish nuns. I asked her how to control my temper, and she stared at my forehead for a moment before answering. It is already changing for the better, she said. Don't take things so personally. Then she told me to show her how my meditation was going. It startled me, right here and now. She laughed. Of course, you have to know how to meditate anywhere, even with many distractions around you. Let's see how you do. I chose a point on the wall and relaxed my shoulders. I let my eyelids droop to half-mast. My torso calmed down, my breathing slowed. However, because I was being evaluated by the master, my heart rate refused to decrease, and my mind kept jumping up and checking, what does she think of me? After three or four minutes, I forgot she was there, and my meditation straightened out. After five minutes, she said, okay, and I emerged calm. You are making progress, I beamed, but here is a story to think about. Let's say you are getting on a train with a big, heavy package. You find a seat on the train in an empty compartment. Now, do you keep carrying the package or do you set it down on the seat next to you? I nodded to show her I understood, but she shook her head lovingly. You, my dear, continue to carry the package. She scolded me by shaking her finger at me. Set it down. I laughed. I promised I would work on it. God is the train, and once you're on board, you don't have to struggle so much. Let him take care of the weight. 
I had understood intellectually, but when she said those last words, I choked up, tears in the corners of my eyes. She looked deep into my eyes and spoke without words. Yes, that's it. When I walked out onto the Calcutta Street an hour later than usual, about half past nine, the shoemakers and candy vendors were chatting under single incandescent bulbs hanging from wires. A stray dog loped across the road, a taxi sailed by on fat tires, and I floated home a foot above the cracked pavement. What was this sensation? I almost didn't recognize it. I felt drunk. November 2000, Dhaka, Bangladesh. Happy Ramzan. This is an extract from my diary. We are now in Ramzan, the holiest month of the Muslim calendar, also called Ramadan. Here in Bangladesh, we started 24 hours after the Middle East because no one saw the new moon here until Tuesday. Believers mark this time by fasting from both food and water between sunrise and sunset. During Ramzan, people practice compassion and free themselves from vices. Bangladesh has approximately 130 million people, packed into a land space the size of Wisconsin. It's one of the most densely populated countries in the world. 87% of the people are Muslim. I checked with the staff of my hotel several times about Ramzan, and they told me they didn't expect me to keep the fast. The English daily newspaper, The Independent, ran an associated press clip from Saudi Arabia in which the government threatened to deport any foreigners seen eating or drinking publicly during daylight hours. So I just wanted to clarify how my hotel staff feels about it. I imagine it would be extra hard to maintain a full fast if you saw some tourist walking down the street chomping on a hamburger. Thus, I ate lunch as usual in the hotel dining room with only two tables, and I'm the only one ever there. I felt a little strange at noon, knowing that the cook and the waiter were both keeping full fast. I finished my noodles quickly and went to write in my room. At 5.14 p.m., sunset, a knock on my door brought a very special treat, the iftar, or Ramzan evening meal. The plate held a mini veggie burger, a batter-fried piece of cauliflower, a batter-fried slice of okra, a small heap of spicy chickpeas, a cupful of puffed rice, a banana, an orange, a fig, and a deep-fried cane sugar donut in the shape of a pretzel. I like okra, surprisingly, which is lucky because it's often the main vegetable. Puffed rice, too, is a common treat. I used to have it as a cereal with milk for breakfast when I was a kid, but here, and in West Bengal, it served as a snack or a side dish, as if it were steamed or boiled rice. The donut to top off the meal would be a big hit at the Minnesota State Fair. December 2000, Dhaka, Bangladesh, Debate Rules. Today I attended a meeting for young people who are leaders on their school's debate teams. I interviewed a handful of the 12 through 15-year-olds from all over Dhaka. When I asked them about the pressing issues of their city and country, they described human rights conflicts, pollution, as well as Bangladesh's growing problems with youth violence. None of these students attend schools where English is the language of instruction, and yet they were able to understand my questions and provide articulate answers in English. Smart. A short, skinny boy with teacup ears, Abdul, enchanted me. He reminded me of a good friend from high school who argued on the debate team against me and always won. Both Abdul and my friend share the same humility, a quality which can never be staged, and the same habit of answering a tricky question in this order. Glance downward, wait a half beat, stammer on the first syllable only of the reply, and then blindside you with a crystalline polymathical rendering of indisputable facts. Abdul did just that when I threw him a couple of lobs on pollution, so I sped it up with queries on domestic abuse and then drug addiction, all debate topics he had studied over the past year. He aced them all, and so after I let him go back to the meeting, I tapped the program coordinator to find out a little bit more. He replied, Abdul, he's brilliant, isn't he? All these kids are good, but he's special, that one. You know what? His father passed away three years back. He lives with his mom and his little sister. Good kid. I stood in the doorway and surveyed the room. Suddenly it struck me how many of the young people were wearing their school uniforms, white shirts and blue trousers, or blue salwar kameezes. It's the school holiday time after exams, but suddenly I got that these kids don't have more than one set of clothes. The workshop ended at 4.45 in the afternoon, and by then I had already asked if I could accompany Abdul to his home and take a photograph or two in order to fill out the profile of an example student for the case study. He was excited, though he kept his cool. A junior program coordinator came with us, and the three of us boarded an auto rickshaw. 
despite the raucous traffic and engine noise in the open-sided vehicle, all the way to his house, Abdul asked me polite questions about my siblings, my stay in Bangladesh, and my work. The auto rickshaw turned off the main highway, and we jolted through narrow, brick-paved lanes. We were only half an hour away from the downtown of the capital, but already the environment was agricultural. Each cluster of houses surrounds a pond or a rice paddy. We stopped at an open market, and I bought some donuts and puffed rice for iftar, the evening meal. Our timing was right on, because as we pulled up to Abdul's house, the sky swam with Quranic choruses from mosques in all directions. Abdul's little sister opened the gate, and we all entered the tiny courtyard in front of their house, where a few pieces of laundry were hanging. We took off our shoes at the front door and went in. Abdul's family splits the one-story building with his cousins. Each family has one large room. Their room was immaculate. It held two double beds with plenty of space to walk between them. The carpet was clean, and everything was organized into glass-fronted wooden cupboards that lined the walls. Abdul's little sister whipped around, pulling plates and glasses out for us. She was bright and efficient, just like her brother. Mom came in five minutes behind us. She had been in the city. Wrapped in a black headdress, her lined face lit up when she saw us, and she immediately rustled up the iftar the kids had already started preparing. She greeted the program coordinator in Bangla, and he told her why we had come. She beamed and spoke to me in translation. I'm so happy Abdul is learning about the problems of our times, she told us. This is important for him for when he is an adult. We ate our sweets and took pictures, and after a little while we had to get going. Abdul didn't want to see us go, and yet he maintained his composure during the goodbyes. If you have a chance, you can come by again, he said, as we pulled away in the auto rickshaw. Actually, I'll see Abdul sometime, in about 30 years, at a university lecture or on a magazine cover. No debate about it. December 2000, Dhaka, Bangladesh. Healing Crisis. For nearly four months since the convent in Poland, I had kept to a strict vegetarian diet. They say it purifies the mind. I had never studied proper vegetarianism, however, so I thought it meant eating rice, or noodles, or potatoes, only. I had suffered a bad headache in Calcutta, but at 3 a.m. one night in Dhaka, the headache came back and swelled up into my first migraine. I couldn't stand light, I buried my head in the pillow, and stabbing pains in the skull. Since meditation had taken me through emotional turmoil, I hoped it would get me through physical pain. I sat and relaxed, and the migraine abated a bit. I chanted Om, and the migraine seemed to cooperate. Then, just as I was ready to crawl back into bed, the migraine turned on its sirens at top volume. The next day I told a hotel staff member, and he said, I notice you are not eating fish. Don't you know we have very nice fish here in Bangladesh? but I shook my head, sticking to my principles. It would take me a few more months to solve that puzzle. April 2001, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, looking through a new lens. The last country on the Ashoka case study list was Brazil. I'd been to Poland, India, Bangladesh, Mexico, and Argentina. Of course, I'd placed Brazil purposefully last so that I could reunite with friends and consider moving back, following the invitation of the big red sunrise on the beach. A professional photojournalist, known internationally for his stellar work and easygoing attitude, was one friend I gladly caught up with. We met for cafezinhos regularly, and during the third or fourth meeting, he suggested we start a business together. I remember it well. His dogs were lying at his sandy feet, and the bright sun made shadows through the palm trees. He was drinking an Amazonian acai juice, and I was on my third espresso of the day. He said, you can write, and you have good experience with nonprofits and with research. The way forward is video. I like shooting stills, but I've been eager to learn how to film. What do you say we set up a production company? It made perfect sense. We brainstormed a mission statement and a name. His idea solved immediate problems. What was I going to do with all this experience, and how could I move back to Brazil and get paid? July 2001, Minnesota. A one-to-one -one meeting with a real channel. Back in Minnesota for the summer, before I moved to Brazil to open the TV production company, I scheduled my first one-to-one -one meeting with a real channel, the one who pointed me toward what I do today. Picture the green city of St. Paul, right across the Mississippi River from my home city of Minneapolis. A hot day. I pulled up in front of a white clapboard house in the middle of an ordinary street. The channel was about 60, overweight with pale, stringy hair. She seemed shy, as if human contact was difficult. 
but she had total empathy in her eyes and I felt safe. We sat down in the only clean room in the house, a side parlor with just enough room for a card table and two chairs. I gave her no background information. Your brother died quickly without warning. He finished his contract early at his request and he rolled it up early. I recalled how he had gone without disease or apparent pain. He is not in contact with you, she said. He is busy learning. He's busy in school. He's fine now. Don't worry. She closed her eyes and said, Biochemistry out of kilter. Stop eating sugar. Need to dance. Need exercise. Well, that was all true. She then covered material in my family and my current friendships that also made good sense. I felt she had a direct line to my angels. You're about to start a new job, she said. All your guides are hopped up about this one. Fun, with travel, and creative, too. They must be talking about the TV production company. Great. I was inspired. Can I do what you do? She stared at me for a moment and said, For me, it was a painful process, like having all the radio stations switched on at the same time. In her kindness, she was warning me away. But my visit reawoke that old interest in magic and saints and the supernatural, everything I had studied when I was younger. August 2001, Minnesota, beginning a healthy path. Home for a visit, I dropped the sobriety I'd been cultivating on my round-the-world trip. I took a holiday from not drinking. The social life revolved around bars that played live Irish music and served Guinness, my old friend. Exercise stopped being a hike across a foreign city and became a stroll to the superette to buy smokes. I crumpled up two boxes per day. I drank whiskey, I ate pizza, drank Coke, and I never cooked for myself. But I was a strict vegetarian. That meant I must be healthy, right? I often had digestive problems, headaches, concentration issues, jagged sleep, and I had no idea why. I wasn't tracking it. My bouts with depression came back. I considered taking antidepressant medication again, and I attributed all these emotions to my own perfectionism. Had I forgotten all I'd learned? The St. Paul Channel had given me specific recommendations. Get off sugar. I cut all sweet stuff out of my diet, the first detox. Off sugar, my whole life changed. I could see things clearly, my moods made sense, and I thought, oh, there is something to this health thing that people keep talking about. Now, when I become enthusiastic about a project, I jump in completely. I sought out a medical specialist, a kinesiologist, who taps into what your body really wants instead of asking your mind its opinion. Kinesiology uses muscle testing. I lie down on a bed, the practitioner holds my hand and places tiny samples of food and chemicals on my tummy and then tries to raise or lower my arm. I can't see what's in the samples, but my body either accepts or rejects them according to what it needs. The arm gets stronger or weaker, and the practitioner makes a list. On my no list. Sugar, yeast, milk, cheese, bread, tomato sauce, as in pizza, alcohol, hmm. On my yes list. Beef, fish, spinach, broccoli, carrots, pumpkin, sweet potatoes, basil, salt. I started to listen to my body with the help of kinesiologists as translators. My extra pounds dropped off, I looked leaner, and my energy increased. Did I stick to that list religiously? No, it was tough, but at least I had guidelines. September 2001, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Pioneers of Change. I'd only been in Brazil a few days, getting the TV production company up and running, when the vice president of Ashoka called again, this time to send me to a conference run by Pioneers of Change. Founded just a couple of years before, in 1999, Pioneers is an international network of people in their 20s and 30s who are committed to social change, no matter if their jobs are corporate, nonprofit, or artistic. It sounded wonderful, and I agreed to go to represent Ashoka. However, I hadn't counted on how difficult it would be to obtain the right foods. Since I was on this meat and greens kick, attending a conference meant going along with whatever meals they offered, which was yummy grub, but it didn't meet my new needs. Since I could speak Portuguese, I left the conference several times to buy cans of tuna from nearby shops, and I sneaked off to a burger joint to get my beef fix, but not eating with the group made me feel like a control freak. That was a minor personal concern compared to the amazing journey we undertook together. Pioneer's founder, Mila, had designed an itinerary up and down the coast between Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro, visiting educational programs who utilized the philosophies of Paulo Freire. Freire had died a short time before this trip, but his legacy still permeates Brazilian and international education. 
he made learning useful, applicable, and politically oriented. While we visited and asked questions, we passed around a single digital video camera. Nearly every one of the 30 participants from 14 countries got a chance to shoot. Although the footage turned out a bit wonky, it was authentic. We visited one of the most famous and controversial of Brazilian organizations, the MST, Movimento Sem Terra, known in English as the Landless Movement. The MST move onto uncultivated pastures and set up new towns, taking advantage of a loophole in Brazilian law that says land must be used for the good. The big landowners don't like this, and clashes between them and the MST have turned violent over the years. Where Freire comes in is the MST's educational system. Most landless people tend to be pre-literate, so teaching reading is the first priority. What should they learn how to read and write? Cat, sat, mat? No, how about, dear newspaper, we have just built a settlement on the river and we need electrical connections from the municipality. We are citizens too and we need light. Frary helped people make the leap by transcribing exactly what they wanted to say and then reading it back to them. And it worked. The pioneers' participants marveled at the MST, as well as at the theater of the oppressed and Afro-reggae and the graffiti school. All the while, I was marveling at the pioneers. This was a version of the tribe I had been seeking. I signed up. My first contribution? To edit the wonky footage into a 20-minute travelogue, which eventually helped pioneers raise money for future conferences. At the same time, I taught myself video editing on Final Cut Pro, an invaluable skill for our new TV company. April 2002, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Lysis the Gypsy. I felt lost and lonely. I adored the flow of life in Rio, but I was getting desperate for true love, a husband. I'd had several brief affairs, but afterwards I felt worse. A friend told me about Lysis the Gypsy, who read tarot cards. Politically correct, I asked gently, do you mean she is from the Rome people? My friend quipped back, yeah, I asked her the same thing, and Lysis said, call me a gypsy. Lysis gave me clear directions to her apartment, which was about as far away from Ipanema as you could go while still being in Rio. I'd never been anywhere near her place, and it looked so different. More cement and fewer trees. The interior of Lysis's flat exploded with color and junk. It reminded me of India. Glaring pink curtains, gold fringe, framed metallic foil portraits of saints and angels, and porcelain figures of animals. She offered me tea, and for once in my life I refused, after a quick waft from the kitchen turned my stomach. But when we sat down at the table and Lysis read the cards, I forgot the surroundings and listened deeply to her accurate channeling. She went on and on about my upbringing and how living in such a rationalist family had taken its toll on my belief in my magical abilities. This had made me stronger and able to explain myself clearly to all kinds of people. She suggested I keep in touch with the family by telling stories about my travels, which I certainly agreed with. She discussed my work situation with the film production company. I was to recognize that the company really belonged to my business partner. I was dispensable. This I had sensed already, and I was glad that she confirmed it. She lit a cigarette and sat back to discuss the next topic. So, no luck in love, eh? She coughed or laughed. I couldn't tell. Yeah, right. Well, you're going to meet someone soon when you go overseas for work. I didn't have any gigs lined up, but it was possible. You'll have to be careful with this relationship in order to keep it running. Not a single complaint, not to him or anybody else, about how or what he does. Hmm, this sounded bad. What would he be like, I asked. Generous, but don't tell anyone about his generosity. Rich, intelligent. Oh, and he's nine years older than you, and he comes from South America. Not Brazil, South America. I took notes, not as if I would need them. She was very clear. Let me know how it goes. One hour was up. September 2002, Acambaro, Mexico, Pioneers of Change at BAT. A year had passed since the Pioneers Conference in Brazil. We had developed the TV company, thanks to my business partner's professional skills, into a profitable organization. We had clients connected to the BBC, the United Nations, and the World Health Organization. Then Pioneers received an interesting commission. They invited me to take part. A foundation in the United States wanted to ask people around the world one question. What do love and forgiveness mean to you? One year after the 9-11 incident in New York, people were concerned with compassion. 
Other members of Pioneers interviewed people in faraway lands, academics, religious people, elders, and I was to bring my camera to Mexico and capture the answers of Pioneers' participants. This was my overseas job that Lysis had predicted, and so as soon as I arrived, I asked the coordinator, who is here from South America? Well, you, she replied, and that young woman sitting over there. She looked bemused. Shannon, did you have a dream about this? I explained, and she smiled, but she shook her head. Nobody on the list matched the description. We began the activities right away, getting to know each other, identifying our country's challenges and strengths, discussing our work, and how closely it matched or didn't match our personal vocations. I remember making a personal graphic timeline to share with my small group all the major events of my life up till then. A British South African guy in that group was particularly good-looking and interesting. I was curious, but as soon as I found out he was four years younger, I wrote him off. He didn't meet Lisa's description. That night, I moved into a room for the week, sharing it with the other South American girl. She slept soundly. I woke up halfway through the night and stifled a scream. A bat was flying back and forth across the room. I hid under the blanket. In the morning, I mentioned the bat to the hotel manager. She suggested keep the windows closed. Well, they were closed. Night by night, that bat kept flying back and forth until I got used to it. By the fourth evening, I was waving goodnight to the bat. Because my roommate had never stirred during the bat viewings, I didn't want to scare her, so I waited until the fifth day to reveal the bat story. I'm glad you didn't tell me, she said. But ah, the bat is a potent totem animal. It means complete transformation, rebirth. That evening, while we all sat in the large circle, the bat joined us. Most people had heard of her by then, and although they screamed when she came in, they quieted down as she circled a few times and then left. I commented, big life changes for all of you? The last weekend I got together with that guy I had a crush on. The relationship heated up quickly, and I moved from Rio to Cape Town to live with him. However, the whole love story lasted only a year and a half. Should I have waited for Lysis's predicted man, or was this the one? Did I not follow her instructions closely enough? Had I been too critical? I'll never really know. That bat was right. It was time for a rebirth.